0: All right, all right. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of What Had Happened, a true crime podcast. I am your host, Kimberly, bringing you lesser known true crime stories. How's everyone doing? Off the top, this episode is dedicated to my mom, Kim, who passed away seven years ago. Tomorrow, my mom is the person who got me interested in all things true crime related, starting at a very young age with like reruns of Perry Mason, and, like, McMillan and Wife, and stuff like that. And then, like, you know, gradually moving on to stuff like, sorry, I'm sucking on a lozenge, my voice, um, moving on to, like, Hunter, and stuff like that, and, like, then, like, True Crime really became a thing, thing, and, like, ooh! Yeah, so, this one's for you, Mom. Anyways, I hope it's all good wherever you are in the world. I have no complaints here in Anywhere USA. The holiday blitz is upon us. From holiday parties to white elephants and everything in between that so many of us have penciled in on our calendars. I'd like to thank you for lending me your ears at some point during all of this hustle and bustle. You, my listeners, are the best gift this holiday season. For sure if you haven't already be sure to join the what had happened true crime facebook group where i share true crime memes true crime stories podcast updates welcome new members Uh, our true crime community is growing and i'd love to see more interaction amongst you guys and in the group hello mcfly like i can't just be the only one sharing stuff it's a lot i'm a busy girl Anyways, there's also the What Had Happened YouTube channel, website, Instagram, Twitter, as well as an email address where you can email me about true crime stories you're interested in hearing me discuss, or just to say, hey girl, hey, long time listener, first time emailer, whatevs, just keep it clean. All of those links can be found below in the description box, along with my references per the usual. So, <clears throat> now, it's that part of the episode where I'd like to say thank you, thank you, thank you. You're far too kind. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This is your shout-out time. What's good? Albany, New York City, the Bronx, and Brooklyn. Thank you for listening. Seattle, Bellingham, Everest, and Pulsebo, Washington. Hey, Chicago, Libertyville, Elgin, Park, Largo, Uh, I'm sorry, in Shamsburg, Illinois. What's poppin'? Jacksonville, Pinellas Park, Largo, and Orlando, Florida. Victoria, Queensland, and Tasmania. Hi, Ontario, Alberta, Quebec, and Nova Scotia. Thanks for listening. Bavaria, Germany. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And oh my goodness, thank you so much for Auckland, Canterbury, and Wellington, New Zealand. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That's feedback. So I'll sit back a little bit. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the likes, shares, and subscribes. Ooh, that's more feedback. That's better. Last episode, I discussed the Missoula mauler, Wayne Nance, a burgeoning serial killer who was killed by the last couple he attempted to murder in the you know, active self-preservation and trying to retain my voice pieces. The script is literally like four pages shorter, so it's going to be a shorter episode, maybe. We'll see once I get into my What Had Happened synopsis at the end. But, um, today's episode in keeping with the holiday spirit, my gift to you, my listeners, is to tell you what had happened during Christmas in two stories. I was going to do three, but this voice of mine... Our first cryptic Christmas story takes place December 24th, 2007 in Carnation, Washington. Carnation is a rural western Washington community with approximately... 2,200 residents, and the town is roughly 1.1 square miles in size. The Andersons, Wayne, a 60-year-old engineer at Boeing, and his wife, Judy, a postal carrier at the Carnation Postal Service, were preparing for Christmas Eve with two of their three children and grandchildren. And, of course, like spouses, boyfriend, what have you So they were expecting a full house. Pardon me already gotta take a sip. So ooh it's like I'm almost ready to tell you about dumpster juice off the rip. But I'm not. <coughs> Anywho so they've got three children, son Scott, and they've got daughter Mary, who has a family of her own. And daughter Michelle, who has a boyfriend named Joseph. Daughter Mary was like, you know what's not the business? My sister. Michelle essentially gave Mary, like, creepy crawly vibes. Well, you know, she had told people that she was afraid of her sister. So she and her family were not going to be in attendance for the Christmas Eve festivities at mom and dad's home was the gist of that however son scott his wife erica both age 32 and their two children uh olivia age five and nathan age three as well as as i said before michelle and her boyfriend joseph were gonna be there so i just kind of skipped around a little bit and hit you with that but anywho Two of the six expected guests lived in a mobile home on the adjacent lot that Wayne and Judy owned. The lot's occupants, the couple's 29-year-old daughter, Michelle, and her boyfriend, 29-year-old Joseph Thomas McEnroe, they lived there. Michelle and Joseph were said to be an odd pair. The two began dating four years prior, uh, before meeting, like, They met online. So after meeting online, they started dating. And it had been like four years into their relationship. Joseph had told his mom that he wanted to marry her. And, you know, have children in two years time. Uh, You know, it was a whole vibe. So he moves from Arizona to be with Michelle. And... Eventually, they fall on hardships financially um, and employment wise. And so the two are given permission to basically live in a trailer that Wayne and Judy owned on an adjacent lot on their property that they also owned, which is super clutch. You know, mom and dad have like prop- extra property and a place to live right there. However, as I said, they were like an odd couple. The two were said to have had a volatile relationship. Past neighbors commenting on how they could hear the two argue from time to time. Some commented that while nice-ish, they were, they were weird with hair-trigger tempers over things as like minuscule as parking spots or children playing near or on their yard. So... Michelle had confided that her upbringing was abusive. Michelle felt that she was being mistreated, disrespected, and trampled on. Michelle told her boyfriend that if her family didn't start respecting her by Christmas Eve, she was going to kill her family. Once close, Scott and Michelle's relationship began to disintegrate when he failed to repay a loan Michelle had given him. It further imploded when Scott and his wife Erica married and began their family. Michelle was infuriated that her parents refused to side with her in the burgeoning feud between the siblings. Furthermore, it was also alleged that Wayne and Judy were about to require Michelle and Joseph to pay a rent for staying on their adjacent property in their trailer in that trailer. Before converging on Wayne and Judy’s home, Michelle and Joseph armed themselves. The pair went to a pawn shop and bought a 357 and a 9 millimeter. They drove the 200 yards from their trailer to Michelle’s parents’ little white home. When the couple entered Wayne and Judy’s home, they split up and began their ambush. Joseph went to distract Judy, who was in the back of the home, wrapping Christmas gifts for her, chil- her grandchildren, who should be, you know, they were expecting them to arrive very soon. Michelle and Wayne were in another section of the home when she pulled out her 9mm and attempted to shoot him. When the weapon jammed, Judy sprang to see what the noise was. Joseph stepped in and murdered Wayne. After apologizing to Judy, he killed her. After shooting Mr. and Mrs. Anderson, Michelle and Joseph moved her parents' bodies outside, then cleaned the crime scene, burning evidence in the backyard, and readying themselves for the arrival of Michelle's brother Scott and his family. Excuse me. When Scott and his wife Erica both 32, and their children, Olivia, age 5, and Nathan, age 3, stepped into Wayne and Judy's threshold. While nothing was amiss at first glance, the family had walked into an ambush. Michelle shot Scott several times, killing him in front of his wife and children. Shooting wildly, Wildly, I presume, Michelle wounded Erica as she was in an attempt to scramble behind the couch with her two children and shield them from what was happening. Somehow, in an act of quick thinking and desperation, Erica hid behind the couch with the children and dialed 911. Joseph quickly sprang on Erica, disassembling the cordless phone before she had a chance to utter a word to emergency dispatch. Joseph threw the phone and battery across the room and allowed Erica a moment to hug her children. Through tears, Erica pleaded for the lives of her children, of herself, and that of her children, saying to Joseph that he didn't have to do this. To which Joseph said he did, and he shot her dead. After killing Scott and Erica, Michelle asked Joseph to kill her niece and nephew for her, as she imagined that watching their parents be murdered, they <clears throat> suffered potentially, you know, irreversible mental trauma, and they, you know, basically also mm, couldn't leave any witnesses. <sighs> I don't have my, oh, I do have my dumpster do, douche, douche, so, juice dick sorry i know that's super loud but you know what you get what you give that was super dumpster juice okay so joseph first shot olivia in the head at close range (sighs) then when he turned around to nathan he saw the young boy holding up the phone battery joseph then shot nathan in the head during the time of the children's execution it's thought that Michelle locked her parents property gate barring access by the police who would attempt to respond to the seconds long 911 call Erica had placed as Scott was being murdered Michelle and Joseph fled the area to establish their alibi on December 26th when Judy failed to show up at work her bestie and also co-worker went to the Anderson home to check on her when Linda Thiel arrived to the home after getting no answer at the door she peered into the window where she saw bodies on the floor assuming they were the bodies of Judy and Wayne Linda called 911 and was like yo there's bodies on the floor there's like been a murder it was only after police entered the home that it was discovered that the bodies inside the home were those of Scott, Erica, Olivia, and Nathan Anderson. Michelle and Joseph, who had intended on crossing the border into Canada, returned back to Carnation. When the two returned, they had their story. Uh, they had their story. You know, basically set. And their story was going to be that they traveled to Las Vegas to get married, only deciding at the last minute to turn back and go home and discovered the massacre of Michelle's family. Like, what the fuck? Look what I walked in on. Instead, Michelle and Joseph were met by yellow crime scene tape and police vehicles. After being interviewed, the two were both arrested and tried separately for their parts in the murders of Michelle's six family members. The two waived their rights to appear in front of a jury as they both confessed to the multiple homicides whilst in police custody. May 15- or May 2015, Joseph McEnroe was spared death- okay, so he was spared death because there was, like, a moratorium on the death penalty being issued and doled out in Washington State. There's that. Like, I'm just not even gonna sugarcoat that shit. There's a moratorium. So, you're not that fucking special, but you're special, but whatever. You, like, narrowly avoided it. There's that. Anywho, he was spared death, but sentenced to life in prison. In April 2016, Michelle Anderson, who was also found guilty of six counts of aggravated first-degree murder, and also sentenced, was also sentenced to life in prison. Each are currently serving their sentences in Washington State Correctional Facilities. Now, our next story, and final takes us to Covina, California, December 24th, 2008. Covina, California is a city in Los Angeles County, approximately 22 miles east of downtown LA. The population just shy of 50,000 people. You guys, I saw pictures. She cute. What's not cute, though, is what had happened at the Ortega Christmas Eve party, December 24th, 2008. To understand what had happened, we have to, like, go back just a skosh because, as you can tell, I did not go super hard in my, um, you know, I didn't give you the background background. I told you the what had happened on the day of the what had happened. Basically, but because of this dumpster juice, we got to go back a hair. So, on January 26, 2006, Bruce Pardo married Sylvia Ortega. Sylvia brought three children to the marriage the youngest, a five year old daughter. Bruce, an electrical engineer for ITT Electronic Systems Radar Systems in Van Nuys, California. Bruce hid from Sylvia, though, that he had a son with an ex-girlfriend and was in deep shit. Yeah, there's no deep trouble. I type deep trouble, but fuck that shit. He was in deep shit on many layers. First of all, as a human being and also with the government and legally. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there was layers to this onion of funky. So, their son had sustained severe brain damage from an- I'm using huge ass quotes- an accidental fall into like around the family pool area and he was a toddler okay the young toddler was in his father's care at the time after their son's accident which occurred again while I su- like i said while in Bruce's care the medical bills reached about $340,000 Bruce's ex sued him to obtain funds from his $100,000 homeowner's insurance payout, you know, to pay for, I'm sure, for, like, to help pay down, whittle down that medical bill mountain of debt that she had occurred, you know, because her child had been injured substantially. She also asked for $36,000 for a trust to pay for their son's constant in-home care. So, not only did Bruce not pay his ex or contribute any money to his son's trust. Here we go. (coughs) Dumpster fucking juice. That was a good one. That felt good felt the vibration of it. I know it's vibration, but that was a vibration. Anywho, he committed tax fraud, claiming his son as a dependent on tax forms unbeknownst to his ex-girlfriend. For, like, six years. For six years. S- Dumpster, Dumpster juice. juice. So, like, every time she did taxes, she wasn't getting... The little bit of money that she could be getting back, which could go down to helping pay down the mountain of debt that she had occurred, you know, in the sake of keeping her kid alive. Fuck you, bro. Fuck you. As a mom, I say, fuck you. Anyways, so the new Mrs., well, the Mrs. Pardo. Sylvia, the Pardo family settled into Bruce's home. So, Bruce owned a home because he was making really good money, okay? (sighs) Bruce was making some really good money at, you know, working as an electrician, you know, an electrical engineer. But, by December 2007, the couple was estranged. Bruce had embezzled the couple's joint savings, which was roughly $87,000. He, like, siphoned it off into, like, two separate accounts over the course of, like, a couple of a couple of months. Like, into two separate bank accounts that she had no knowledge of, no anything, nothing. Okay? He had also racked up over $30,000 in credit card debt. So, in February 2008, Sylvia filed for divorce. In Sylvia's filings, she asked for both her attorney's fees and spousal support to be paid out by Bruce. Okay. I mean, whatever. So, in June 2008, Bruce lost his job and began to scramble to find the money in he was court ordered to pay Sylvia which by my tabulations was two months of the rears of non-payment as well as the current payment so three months of spousal support he hadn't paid so basically when they when she filed yeah when she filed in February he may have paid her in March, but then come June, he hadn't paid her anything for approximately three months, or he had reached the three-month marker, so he was scrambling to try to find the money. Bruce harbored, while he was trying to do that, he he harbored, like, a deep-seated hatred for Sylvia, her family, his mom for supporting Sylvia in the divorce, and his wife's divorce attorney, Bruce began formulating a gruesome plot of revenge and escape. So, he squirreled away $17,000 and planned to slip into Canada on December 25th by way of flying into Illinois Uh, in October of 2008. He had visited a friend. It was kind of vague as to whether the friend lived in Canada or the friend lived in Illinois, but homie was like, yeah, I'm going to be moving out here soon, huh? boy. So he had made arrangements, and so he also had scrolled away $17,000 so that he could, like, you know, start a new life, uh, with a new identity. And he wanted to do that up in Canada. On December 18th, 2008, the divorce between Bruce and Sylvia was finalized. When the divorce was finalized, the support payments were waived, and Bruce was given the house. However, he was ordered to pay Sylvia $10,000, return her, like, super expensive engagement ring, and turn over custody of the couple's Akita Saki. So, on December 20th, Bruce informed his attorney that he needed a little bit more time to come up with the $10,000 payment for Sylvia. But, we know that Bruce was plotting and planning to kill everyone he felt wronged him. Bruce was very organized. He plotted and planned, and then he went and rented two vehicles. The first, I'm going to say this is the first, because this is the one that he parked off somewhere else. The first was a 99 Toyota RAV4, which contained gas cans, two computers, and a map of Mexico. And that was parked in in Glendale, near the home of Sylvia's divorced attorney. The second, yet primary rental, was a Dodge Caliber, which contained over 300 rounds of ammunition, a pipe bomb, booby trap mechanism rigged rig, rig to fire to a flare, and black powder. There were also some weapons in the end, but you know, whatever. I'm not gonna give this fucker anymore. Mm than what I just gave him with all of that. Ever detail-oriented, Bruce packaged and gift-wrapped, a rolling air compressor converted to spray gasoline, and at least four millimeter handguns. Bruce then disguised himself as Santa Claus. Bruce knew the rest of his intended targets of his rage outside of the attorney were suppose so and his mom because i think she like, had to decline because she was sick or something like that um but anywho they all con- you know he needed they would all be converged at his former mother and father-in-law's home for a christmas eve party his own mother had been invited okay so at approximately 11 30 p.m on december 24th 2008 Bruce walked up to the Ortega door and knocked. Holding his festively wrapped package containing his weapons, he entered the home and immediately shot his former niece, eight-year-old Katrina, last name redacted, in the face wounding her. I redacted it. Bruce then began shooting into the party of 25 wildly and indiscriminately. (sighs) fucking dumpster juice all around. Partygoers fled to safety. It's believed that some of Bruce's victims were shot execution style. After firing off all of his rounds into the party, Bruce unwrapped the package containing the compressor, spraying the home with gasoline and setting it on fire. Bruce's victims died from either gunfire fire or a combination of both gunshot wounds and being perished in this house fire of the 25 partygoers, nine were dead and three were wounded eight-year-old katrina sustained a gunshot wound to the face that left her with severe but non-life-threatening injuries a 16 year old girl was shot in the back and wounded and a 20-year-old woman broke her ankle when she jumped from a second-floor window to safety when the gunfire began. One of the partygoers called 911 from the neighbor's house. The fire Bruce set took an hour and a half to be extinguished. The charred remains of his victims were only identifiable by dental records. Bruce's victims were his ex-wife... Sylvia Ortega Pardo, her parents, Alicia and Joseph Ortega, brothers-in-law, Charles and James Ortega, sisters-in-law, Sherry and Teresa Ortega, and Alicia Ortiz, and nephew, Michael Ortiz. After fleeing the Ortega home, suffering from third-degree burns sustained while burning down his former-in-law's home bruce drove to his brother's home it's believed that after sustaining these wounds he abandoned his initial plans of murdering his mother and sylvia's attorney and then you know going on and proceeding with his christmas day travel to illinois and then into canada bruce parked the rental his okay first of all his brother wasn't at home when bruce arrived Bruce parked the rental a block away from his brother's home. He strapped the $17,000 he planned to use to start over in Canada, which was wrapped in cling wrap. He wrapped it in cling wrap and he had it strapped to his leg. And then Bruce shot himself in the head, committing suicide. Hours later, the Dodge Caliber exploded as police were attempting to safely deactivate the devices Bruce planted in the car. After Bruce's death, his mother went on to say that whatever monies or property turned over from her son, basically like his estate or whatever, uh, would be put away for her grandchildren, basically saying like Sylvia's kids. So what had happened is this first we're going to go back to carnation what had happened with this situation of carnation is this from what i read michelle was more of a dominant person in her relationship with her boyfriend joseph she had suffered from a lot of mental instability and illness, depression. Uh, she had been medicated, but it ceased taking her medication because she could no longer afford it at some point in time. You know, she was super troubled. She, begr- you know, she begrudged her family. She felt as if she was the person who was the focus of everyone's attacks within the family unit, i.e. her parents who were either abusive or dismissive to the, and or abusive, and one being abusive, and then the other being dismissive to the abuse. And, you know, her relationship with her brother was fractured. In her mind, she had been basically stomped on by these people so much and she just wasn't with it anymore. She put her fucking foot down and she had a hissy fit. She made an asinine deadline that nobody fucking knew of but her boyfriend and herself. Um, and then she was like, you know what? I ain't no punk. I cannot allow what I just told you, my end game with these people, I cannot. Le- I can't just let it be just words. I have to put that into action. So she and her boyfriend went to the pawn shop and obtained two handguns, a three fifty seven and a nine mil. And then they planned this. This whole thing was premeditated as fuck. It was a double ambush. It was an ambush in waves. was an ambush cleanup job another ambush disappearance type situation so they get these weapons they drive to her parents home which is 200 yards away and immediately it's you distract this one while I go take care of this one and then we'll handle the second one but of course the gun jammed. So there's a change of plans because mom immediately wants to hear, know what had happened and what was that noise. And, you know, unfortunately, she watched her daughter's boyfriend murder her husband in front of her, then apologize to her before killing her. Then the couple clean up and wait for the next wave of casualties to come through the door, which included fucking children. Small children at that. See, in my mind's eye, I don't feel that Michelle really gave a fuck about the mental... like, what those children witnessed. I don't think she gave a shit about that. It was simply we couldn't leave witnesses and she had planned to kill those kids. She resented the shit out of her fucking brother. She resented the shit out of her sister-in-law. She probably disliked those kids low-key. She didn't she might have felt a little bit of guilt because they were kids, but at the end of the day, she told her, boyfriend, you need to execute these children. And that dumb fuck did it. Instead of saying, you know what, no, the buck stops here. We've done enough damage. Let's just go. And not turn back. He made, he made the choice to murder his girlfriend's niece and nephew. Why? Because she felt like she wasn't being she wasn't being held to a certain caliber. Now I don't know what truth there is to that. I don't know how much of that is her mental feelings, but apparently she was scary as fuck because her surviving sibling did not participate in this Christmas Eve function. Because she told someone she was afraid of her fucking sister and what she would do. Yo, when the writing's on the wall, the writing's on the wall, okay? So, I'm just, you know, like... I'm not being dismissive about the mental illness capacity. Because obviously she was off her fucking rocker. She was obviously not well when she committed these crimes. (sighs) However, I feel personally, as if money and maintaining some kind of control and having a hissy fit were a lot of contributing factors in the annihilation of her family. I own my thoughts. That's it on that one. Now, on to Bruce. And, Covina and the massacre of slash arson, at, you know, arson at the Christmas Eve party at the Ortega home. <sighs> Bruce Pardo strikes me as the kind of man who didn't take no for an answer, obviously. Okay? And being hurt in his pocket by his ex-girlfriend, you know, for the sake of, you know, paying for the medical treatment, you know, the the foreseeable future assistance that is needed daily for their child. Let's get to that. There's a part of me that questions whether or not that child actually was in, it was an accident. I question. After seeing how he methodically planned and executed so much of his plans to obliterate the people that he resented the most, I would not be surprised if he had hurt his child to either get back at the ex-girlfriend or to collect money. Or both. Maybe he did not want the child. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just, these are my opinions. These are my thoughts. This is how I feel because nobody can tell me Otherwise, I haven't been able to find anything to tell me otherwise. It's just what stood out to me. Okay. What I do know is that Sylvia Ortega Pardo, who had been married once before, was not a fool. When she was married to Bruce, within the first year, when she saw that things had soured and everything had gone left... She decided to get out. I wonder if she discovered that their joint savings of $87,000 had been, you know, embezzled and absconded by Bruce when she was trying to figure out how much, you know, when she could see what she needed to take out that was rightly hers so that she could leave him With her, you know, children in tow. And start over whilst facilitating the divorce process. So, there's that. Um, I wonder. You know, unanswered questions. But, you know, it is... It it makes sense, you know, that, like, she would be digging into the finances. And then see, like, holy shit, all of the money's gone. And now I'm really fucked. So, you know, when she filed... In February of 2008, she was due the spousal support, even though they were married for only a year. The fact that they together had saved $87,000 and then he, like, took all of it and made it disappear. Yeah, because however long. However long they were going to be married, most likely the spousal support situation was only going to last until the divorce was finalized. And then he was going to cease having to pay spousal support to her. It's not like he was having to pay child support because the children weren't from a previous marriage. And I think they might have all been from the previous marriage or previous relationship and previous marriage. You know what I mean? Whatever. Nonetheless, he wasn't having to pay child support to her. So, you know, I don't know. Or... He could have had to have paid child or you know, spousal support to her until she remarried. You know, there are stipulations. It depends on what state you're in when you get, you know, when you're getting divorced. Um, but you know, it, I believe that considering the fact that he had taken all of the money and made it vanish, it was fair that a the spousal support payments and maybe what he might have been in the rears were waived so long as he paid her a lump sum of $10,000 which very well could have been the amount of money that she had put into that shared savings nonetheless you put 10 in you know that combined you had 87 you go in and now there's zero that means that your 10,000 plus his 77 are gone so where the fuck is all of the money you know what i mean hands up, question mark, you know, question, emoji, shruggy, whatever, um, so she was smart, she got the fuck out of Dodge, um, I don't feel that it was too much for him to have had to pay her $10,000, return the super expensive engagement ring, um, especially if, like, she bought it, or, I don't know, I believe that that is a gift, That's, that's considered a gift, um, most likely in the state of California, for sure, I don't know, never- been divorced in California but I believe the engagement ring is considered a gift and therefore that needed to be returned to her and then the dog but he got to keep the home which was his prior to so there's that and I mean like I guess he just felt like he was just that was it that was it she took everything she took everything but my house and now she must really die and fuck my mom for supporting her through all of this like it's very entitled it's very narcissistic just like I'm sure however he handled and finessed his relationship with his ex and their child that he hid purposefully as well as the debts that he had acquired he hid that shit purposefully and maliciously from Sylvia because he didn't want her to know he hid that shit from her so now we're plotting and not only are we plotting we're plotting some gruesome shit like in like ambush does not begin to describe what this was at this Christmas party this was a massacre and to go ahead and rent two vehicles and rig one with ex- rig one with explosives and have the other one equipped with... More arsonist and explosion type, you know, with more arsonist equipment, as well as two computers in a map to Mexico. The map to Mexico might have been to throw people off, to be perfectly honest. I think that he was, I think he had his mindset on Canada. I think Mexico was just to have everybody go down south instead of go up north. But, that's just me. Um But, you know, like, what the fuck? And then he goes in, and you immediately, off the rip, shoot your former niece, who is a small child who it was reported that she ran to him because he was in a Santa suit, but, you know she she ran to him and he boom, shot her in the face, and then he went around and just started blitzing through the crowd, but I'm sure where the police presume that execution style killings were doled out i'm sure that that most likely is the case when it came to sylvia and potentially her parents and then you know strapping that seventeen thousand dollars with you know the seventeen thousand dollars down to his calf and then just you know realizing that he wasn't gonna make it it reminds me of jenkins uh from the Jasmine Fiore case. What's his name? You know, I I forgot. His, I can never. You know, I remember her name because her name mattered. But for me, remembering uh, her husband Ryan. That's what his name. Ryan Jenkins. Ryan's. He, listen, Ryan Alexander Jenkins is lucky that I remembered that his last name was Jenkins. I don't give the killers that much buzz, fuck y'all, y'all suck. But, you know, it gave that vibe, it gave that feel, you know, when Ryan killed Jasmine and disposed of her body, he called his half-sister, half-sister, stepsister, something like that, and they met up, and then, you know, next thing you know, he's in that, he, his, his body's found in that cabin, uh, where it was, in Canada, yeah, in whole Canada, so he made it across the way, but he wanted to get down to, I think it was like Costa Rica, or Honduras, something like that, where the, they had no extradition, as well as the family owning property down there, so he was trying to, get money to get down there and they were I'm pretty sure his sister was like listen listen, bro this is where the train stops and you know over the course of time that he was there at that motel in Hope Canada he went and killed himself you know similarly to you know that's what I'm thinking same same with Bruce Pardo because Bruce knew once he committed arson and there were people that escaped that they were going to realize you know, that people were people were going to come looking for him. And also, they were going to know where to look for him. They were going to look for him at his home. They were going to look for him at his brother's home. They were going to look for him at his mom's home. You know what I mean? There were layers to it. So, he knew that he had no way of making it post-9-11 into an airport and getting on that Northwest Airlines flight to Illinois and then into Canada. So, his goose was cooked, and he ended it before the judicial system could properly dole out justice for Sylvia Ortega Pardo and her family. So, that's it, you guys. Uh, I think we probably made around 45 minutes or so, maybe 50 minutes. I don't know. We're doing pretty good, you guys. I think it's a pretty good, pretty nice, intense episode. I was sparing with that dumpster juice bell. Uh, Bless you all. I hope you have a great holiday week. I don't know if I'll be back with the New Year's Eve episode. Who knows? I'm me. I'll drop it if I drop it. Or I won't, you know, you never know. It, it it just depends. You know, I'm just Kimberly. Love me. Take me as I am. I, you guys really are the best gift, though. Thank you so much for writing it out, helping build up the listenership, uh, really being encouraging in me going forward with this little podcast of mine. So thank you very much. Again, happy holidays. I will see you very soon with another lesser known true crime story. Here is that outro music. I hope you enjoy it.